Welcome to episode 70 of The People on K Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. On this episode, our guests are Todd LaRue and Micah Silver. Todd LaRue is an artist, and he is the program manager at the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. He's the author of the book Specific Museums of Greater Los Angeles, illustrated by Juliana Wisdom and published by Tiny Splendor Press. He curated the show 21 Collections, Every Object Has a Story, which you can see at the Central Library in downtown Los Angeles until March 24th, 2019. I, I think one thing that I'm hoping some people go away from that show with is the idea that there are people out there who are dedicated to something and who are holding something back and saving it. And I don't need to be the person who is in charge of that stuff, or I don't have to have my own collection, but I can recognize the value in that sort of existing in the world and honor the people who have found something that they um, are, aren't going to let slip by. Micah Silver is an artist and writer living in Los Angeles. His book, Figures in Air, Essays Towards a Philosophy of Audio, is just going into its second printing with Inventory Press, and you can pre-order copies right now. We have become accustomed to use audio as if it were almost some kind of artificial intelligence. We believe, we treat it as if it's almost some kind of transubstantiation. So you put on a record, you imagine that there's some person, some thing, some, some real humanity on the other side of that recording, but it's, there's very little reason that we should believe that. Later in the show, we're going to hear a track from Los Angeles musician Ian Wellman. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record. Magically repaired. Todd LaRue and Micah Silver, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here. Absolutely. So, Todd, you have a show that you put together called 21 Collections, which is at the central branch of the Los Angeles Public Library. Tell us about that show. Yeah, so I've been working for the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for about three, three and a half years now. And um, we are the nonprofit that supports the LA City Library System. We're a separate nonprofit, but everything we do is at, with, and for the library. And um, my job, I'm very fortunate to work on exhibitions and programs, uh, sort of to raise awareness about the library, bring in new audiences and potential partnerships. And the, the show we have right now that I was lucky to work on is called 21 Collections. Every object has a story. And it's about the storytelling possibilities inherent in collections and sort of honoring the role of the public library of, uh, as a collector of the stories of Los Angeles, the people here in the city. And um, through that, the medium of this exhibit, we were able to cast a very wide net, I guess it's fair to say, I explored some 600 collections, museums, archives, private collections, and others throughout Southern California looking for ones that we felt told compelling or interesting stories and ended up with 21 of those that we're featuring. So, <laughs> something funny about the way that you described the show is that in the absence of my relationship to how the show came about is when I first met you. Um, you were every single weekend just driving someplace and essentially had everything planned out. And you say something like, you know, Micah, do you want to go to Simi Valley or something? And there'd be six things that we would, that you had already kind of plotted out to do. And it's not that I, I would have no choice in the matter about where we would go, what was happening. It was, you know, you had a long list 
God knows. I mean, 600 seems actually small well, for the number of possible locations. Well, that doesn't count like parades and cultural <laughs> fairs and that's, I guess, collections or museums. Well, but I'm, I get, I'm a little sorry to hear that you feel you had no choice in, <laughs> in, in the matter. But, no, um, I remember when, when you, I mean, now you're very it's happy. It's true, I tend to have a plan. You have a plan and you, you, you now have like a really lovely partner. Bridget. Bri- Bridget. But I remember, I at, but the feeling I had was that you, this was your avocation. It's just what you did. It's how you filled all of your time. And I thought that was kind of my first introduction to what Todd was all about. Well, that yeah, that's true. So it kind of just worked out that I was allowed to apply that to my day job as well. Yeah. Or or it was somehow appropriate that I was uh, selected by the leadership of the Library Foundation to put together this show. That Actually, the category of collecting or even unusual collections precedes me. When I started at the Library Foundation, they'd been talking to another institution in L.A. about partnering to do that, and it sort of fell through, and then we came back to it later, and my boss, Ken Brecker, the president of the foundation, sort of said, okay, you're going to be in charge of this project. So it was partially because he also knew that I tend to have most of my free time blocked out in terms of what obscure art or activity or thing to go see. But it seemed, what was interesting, what's interesting for me is that it seemed like the form that this research, form of enjoyment, uh, free time killer, however, however, whatever it meant to you, which I think for me, I was always trying to figure out what does this activity mean to Todd? Because it's more all consuming than most people I know. It's, it's a more, it's a more all consuming activity than most people I know have of any type. And I think <laughs> some of our, some of our... Well, and it's like you said earlier, it's like an avocation that you have just picked up because I, I mean, I've been following your, your, your personal Instagram for a long time and and that's that's a constant feed of like what what's this oh what's right. this you where's, know where's Todd yeah it's like <laughs> yeah yeah well, yeah I mean well thank you I'm humbled but um the so the exhibit the this project anyway it ended up being a sort of great outlet for that kind of content if you will or a, a way to share the the best thing about it for me is being able to share some of these stories and collections with people who maybe I don't have access to through my own personal networks who maybe are just at the library for any number of other reasons. And it's uh, the third largest public library building in the country. We see about 5,000 people circulate through there every day on average. So it's an amazing place and there's like no end to the number of services and resources being provided there. So it's it's an an architectural wonder. If you're not from LA and you haven't been here, you should come here and go to it. It's one of the the tourist. I used to take my classes there. It's like a spot to go to for sure. Sure, but it, yeah. it, it also in the 21st century, especially, I would say, has become sort of the most one of the most important organizations for preserving democracy in a way. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many services being provided for free, from kids' homework help to citizenship classes, um, summer lunch programs. It's just kind of endless. In addition to the resources that we're already very familiar with. So I guess what's interesting is for me is how a place which is, you know, one of the few public libraries are one of the few kind of public centers where anyone can go there. It offers a number of different resources like bathrooms, books, computer access. And you're not obliged to pay for anything. You don't have to pay for anything. Um, but your your relationship to these kind of trips, um, which I think from a distance feels kind of like a very unique form of tourism or cultural research of some kind to relocate that research in a kind of civic space 
um, to me that was interesting because it always felt very, very personal. And it was not clear to me in what form you wanted it to take. And at some point it felt like actually you were, you were resistant to the idea of, for example, making some kind of book or almanac or um, you know, even the way that you've, you've now produced a book of yeah. a number of these museums. Well, I evolved on that point. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. I mean, for a long time, just by posting all kinds of weird, interesting stuff on Instagram, I would get a lot of my friends saying, like, you should put out a book or put something together with all of this stuff that you find. And my feeling for a long time, actually, was that, you know, I found all these things somewhere. If, if that's what people want to do with their life, then this information's already readily available. You know, I didn't invent any of these things. I'm just enjoying them and sharing them and whatever, or, you know, with whatever audience I have for that. But I did sort of shift on that because obviously there aren't a lot of people who have um, the, I don't know, it, there's a lot of privilege involved in being able to spend all your time away. You know, you're not taking care of somebody. You're not worried about where your next meal is going to come from. So I acknowledge that. Um, but even so, people are so distracted and there's, you know, you sort of find yourself in these patterns of things that you have to feel you have to get done. Um, but I guess I started to feel like even though people aren't going to drop everything else they've been doing and just start trying to find all the weird parades in Southern California that they can go to every weekend, but people do enjoy knowing about them. And there is a sort of a place for me to you know, share, share that in a more official way. Mm -hmm. Um, so the book is a little effort towards that. It's called specific museums of greater Los Angeles. It highlights 25 underrepresented, I feel museums in greater LA, and it has beautiful illustrations by Juliana wisdom. Who's a great artist and a good friend of mine. Yeah. The illustrations are great. And while we're doing it, you might as well plug the Instagram, the museum a day. Yeah. Thank you. So so good. (laughs) This is a, so I'm still on Instagram. <laughs> it, it's sort of a part of the 21 Collections exhibit or project. During that show, for the entire run, every single day, I'm posting another small museum in greater Los Angeles. Of course, most of them couldn't be featured in the exhibit and actually didn't really want to bring in anything that people can go see elsewhere already. So this was a way to highlight some of the hundreds of places in the LA area that I think are interesting for one reason or another, and which I never would have thought were interesting until I just decided to go there. Um, how did that? How did that start for you? Like just starting to go around to these places. I mean, what uh, what what was the initial peak of your interest for that? Uh, I guess there's always been some like seed of it, and it, the first types of things I would go around to, I guess, are like folk art environments, things that you could comfortably categorize. Um, and I still love that stuff. The Grandma Prisbury Bottle Village, for example, is one of the collections featured in the exhibit now. So it started with that, and after a while of doing that, I actually started to realize that my high school bedroom actually sort of looked like one. I covered all of every available surface and ceiling with hanging just crap that I'd collected and detritus. Um, so that was a kind of realization at some point. Uh, you know, beyond that, I wouldn't be able to say where it came from. Yeah. But, it, yeah. but it, it, what the subject of that was had to evolve as I began to exhaust all of the... <laughs> the folk art <clears throat> environments, yeah. Yeah. So yeah you I, kind of branching out to other places. Yeah, I somehow... 
I don't even, I really wish I could remember how it started, but at some point I realized or found out that small historical society museums often have things in common with a folk art environment where you have somebody who doesn't have uh, specific training in exhibitions or even money to put towards it, but they have something that they want to share and they have space and, and time to be able to do that. So there's all kinds of weird, what I call outsider curatorial things going on where, you know, labels for objects are written in the wrong person, um, which is always charming in some way, or just like crazy stories through the things that are on display that you would have no way of knowing are there unless you just go. So then I got really into this circuit of historical society museums and i'm sure around the time i met micah what three years ago now mm. model train collections citrus museums yeah so it it just you know snowballed it, it actually mm. was sort of part of the research for this project though that i decided i should really just try to you know find and visit every single museum in greater la and sort of make an archive of that and um, that's when I got like really more organized about it, I guess. I would put everything on the map. I had a, I have a special map application where when I go to something, I'll delete it so it's out of the way. And then things that are only open once a month would be on my calendar. So I would know, okay, we're going south to Orange County today, for example. And that's how you can sort of stack things. Or, you know, a lot of these small museums, you couldn't possibly spend more than 20 or 30 minutes. So. You can get to five of them in one day if you're up early and have a plan. <laughs> did you, so did you end up deciding that what counts as a museum is anything that someone says is a museum? Well, this is like a big question and I love to talk about it because what is a museum obviously was a problem when I wanted to figure out what are all, you know, find the list of all museums in greater LA. You have to be able to say what is a museum and there's, no clear answer to that question, I've found. Even if you try to look to the museological community, the people who study museums for a living, which there are some in the world, they don't have a consistent answer either. And the definitions that are out there, I personally found to be unsatisfactory. Um, <clears throat> criteria that they tend to list are it has to be open to the public, well, there's already a sliding scale there because if it's open by appointment or what if it's sort of not open, but you really make a, a, a an effort or a, a point to tell them that you you share this passion, would just love to see it and they'll let you in. Or maybe they're open once a year for an open house or once a month. Um, that refrigeration museum, I can't remember the exact name that's in the book that you had to, like that was very difficult to get. Like you just couldn't walk into it. Even yeah, this is the... Right? Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Museum. Right. That's part of, uh, I'll have to check the notes, but it's it's a community college of some kind. It's right. like a job training uh, program. And the only, that took a long time to get into. I'm sure the fact that I work for the library helped. So, you know, there's this great gray area. And when I went, it was only because they were opening it for a tour uh, for a group called, I think, Winter Women in Non-Traditional Employment Roles. Right. And, um, yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's it. The JJATC, <laughs> the HVAC Training Center, basically, mm -hmm. just south of downtown. Yeah, that places like that, are, they do not have open hours. Yeah, you have there's to, no responsible way you could say that's open to the public. But is right. it not a museum? You know, the, right. so. 
so it's that that's already that's like your first problem. I tend not to count if it's like truly a private like room in someone's house that they consider their museum, but they would never let someone in to see it. You know, I know of a couple of those. I'm sure that's a category where there are many more that I'm not aware of. Those tend not to make the list, although I do like to see them when possible. <laughs> um, and then another one, you know, the question of art museums. And obviously art is gray area in lots of different ways, but you have places like community art galleries, nonprofit art centers, college art galleries, some of which will include museum in the title because they... I mean, for, for good reason. Maybe it is one. Or the, the donor wanted the thing named after them to be called a museum. Others, you can, you can ask them, and they will say, we aren't a museum, we're a gallery. But they're structurally identical organizations. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem, too. And that's where this sort of, that's why Mike was asking, is it just whatever people, whether they call it one or not? So there is a lot of sort of giving people the benefit of the doubt in terms of what counts as a museum. Are there things that you would count on that list that uh, someone would say, oh, it's not exactly a museum, but you would still include on your list? That's pretty rare. Okay. Um, I, I, I actually put a lot into the way that they conceive of it. Okay. So there might be a little like single display case of artifacts related to a subject. And usually if I'm like going to an institution and I heard that there might be a museum there through some 20-year-old list or whatever... I'll, I'll ask whoever answers the door, like, I heard you have some kind of museum here, or, you know, I will use the word museum and see how they respond to that. And that's often the determining factor. You're listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can hear us on K-Chunk, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 p.m. Or... You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio, or you can find us on uh, any of your favorite podcast applications. We're on all of them. Absolutely. And you can find all of our past episodes for free on any, in any of those places. And when you do, if you like the show, tell a friend about it. Uh, you can also leave a rating or review. That'd be great. Yeah, do all three uh, of those. Yeah. Uh, and now we're going to get back to our conversation with Todd LaRue and Micah Silver. So one of the things that Every time I see Micah, we always sort of check in with each other where we're at in our creative arc or to what extent or have we abandoned our former art practices at this point in our lives. It's an ongoing theme, I think you could, it's fair to say. Fair to say. And when, when we met a couple of years ago when Micah was moving out to L.A. and I was sort of moving into a higher gear of exploration of the kinds of things we've been talking about, that at the time felt like something that was outside of what you could call my practice. You know, I moved here to go to CalArts for experimental music composition. And that's what I was doing for a number of years and <clears throat> found a great community for it in LA. But I, I don't know, I guess I just have never stopped drifting in terms of interests or whatever. So that was the direction things started heading outside of that musical practice. And I think, Micah, we became friends over the fact that you were moving away from, I guess, music in a, a similar way, or not moving away from it, but just sort of expanding out, mm. becoming more of a sponge in a way. Or Well, I think, yeah, we, we both share like a experimental music background. Um, and I think both of us have, at this point, 
pretty thoroughly left that. <laughs> um, yeah. But in different in different directions, I think. Uh, I was thinking about connoisseurship, and I was thinking that, uh, like for me, I think experimental music is really basically a cult, or like you know, new music. It's a, um, you know, I was indoctrinated into it at Wesleyan by people like Alvin Lucier, Anthony Braxton. These were, you know, I didn't even know anything about it. We both also grew up in very rural areas where I think we had pretty limited access. Right. Um, I accidentally attended a lecture by Braxton while visiting a college, and I actually thought he was someone else. Like I went to the <laughs> I went to the wrong room, and there was this guy, <clears throat> you know, talking and playing, and I thought. Wow, Jay Hogarth, this guy is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I need to study with this person, so I uh, like signed up for him to be my advisor. And when I showed up on the first day of s- school, and um, you know, Jay Hogarth showed up, who's a, a lovely vibraphone player, but was not Anthony Braxton. I was really, really shocked. Um, but I think you know, I sort of moved, yeah. And that, so I was involved with that, and both as a maker, but also as a curator. I was part of. Um, founding this Experimental music, experimental Media and Performing Arts Center in upstate New York. Um, MPAC. And otherwise known as MPAC. Uh, and I think slowly it became clear to me that through doing installations and projects around experimental music that the kinds of things that I was interested in communicating through that medium were so obscure to the general public that only a kind but of... But you did that for quite some time. I mean, you were doing similar work at MIT, no? Yeah, I think... You know, there's like a 10, 15 year period of doing, you know, being involved with kind of experimental music and sound art in various ways. Um, and slowly feeling like, like I think the main, a, a, a transition for me was I had an installation at Mass Mocha for, it was up for maybe six or eight months at some point. And I felt like the, the response I got to that piece was so strangely not audio related. Um, where for me, I had spent probably a year like, you know, crafting this, there was probably four different types of audio diffusion. Um, it was a really complicated piece in the audio, audio domain, and I think very few people even recognize it as primarily an audio-based work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then additional layers, like the actual um, communication that I was interested in through the kind of form of the piece and the way that I was treating audio and audio artifacts in it was in, entirely opaque to most visitors. And at some point... I think some people feel have a relationship to art where they just are compelled to produce and produce, and I am not one of those people. I think. But I, even yeah. within the sphere of art or audio, you sort of evolved within that world too. I mean, your book sort of moves that conversation into a new direction, which I want you to say something about, and also the air work that you were doing at the mm-hmm. at the park. Yeah. So there was a series of yeah. So let me. I'll get to the air. Basically, leaving, leaving audio, deciding that audio is made of air and then making <laughs> air sculptures. But I think at, at some point, I think at its root for me was um, we live in such a audio-saturated culture, um, but in a very quiet way that I think we don't even consider. I mean, the book is really about we don't even think about what audio is in a really basic way and to try to kind of draw some lines around what um, what we believe audio is and what we want to accept it actually is. Um, but I think moving into, you know, time-based art that is based, that is, uh, uses air as material was actually about moving into a space where there was literally nobody on the planet who could have any kind of connoisseur or expert relationship to the material. 
And so it was a it was a kind of strange democratizing anti-cult, anti-art cult or experimental music cult move for me in terms of trying to um, transport ideas about how time is constructed through sensory experience into a material that everyone was on equal footing with. Right, but so despite yeah. the complexity of the, those types of projects, you're yeah. always interested in them finding audiences that, that were not the cult of that, right? Yeah, and there, and I think it was it's importantly just that it's it's a place of pure intrigue and wonder and curiosity, um, which for me is where art thrives. And so trying to find a space where um, you can go deep into an area of experience that is entirely ubiquitous and central to I mean, we breathe far more than we eat by volume. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, Los Angeles is certainly a city where air and airflow in terms of fires is extremely central to everyone's lives. Um, yeah. And so I think the project, you know, for me was about trying to imagine an emptiness as material. Yeah, what were the, yeah. book, the book of essays? What was that mm. centered around? Well, I think, I guess the, the, the beginning question is if audio is some kind of thing, what kind of thing is it? And... Um, also that audio is uh, like the first essay is called Listening Beyond Turing and the idea uh, the idea is basically that people we, we have become accustomed to use audio as if it were almost some kind of artificial intelligence meaning that we believe if we believe we treat it as if it's almost some kind of transubstantiation so you put on a record you imagine that there's some person some thing some, some real humanity on the other side of that recording but it's there's very little reason that we should believe that i mean it's a testament it's a testament to the technology that we do but it's even more a testament to our imagine the capacity for us to fill in with very very little information in the spectral domain um that kind of feeling you know because people even with wax cylinders for example people collect these things we believe that there's some blues musician playing you know on a port someplace um and there's no reason that we should, you know, but if you listen to the recording, um, there's not even the sound of a guitar. It's probably, you know, 10K bandwidth there, and it sounds nothing like an instrument would really sound. And so it's your imagination that is filling that is filling in even the capacity that it's a guitar or that it's a voice. Well, there's a lot of filling in that goes along with sound and audio experiences, I, I think. As someone who, through my experimental music, got really interested in the perception of sound, mm-hmm. And through studying the work of people like Marin Amache, who you knew and worked with, um, there's something, it's it's enough not known that you sort of have to jump to, like, I don't know, sort of your own ideas about it. Or you, you really quickly, if you get into the mechanics of sound and hearing, find yourself against these walls where that's, you know, it can't be modeled beyond that or it's not fully understood. Yeah, it's certainly beyond quantification at the moment. Um, Like if you think about acoustics, you know, in order to make an accurate acoustic model of the room we're in now, we would need to understand the response of every material here at every frequency bandwidth and have some kind of library where we could, you know, input that into like a 3D CAD software and then model it. You know, my understanding is but that we can't move or breathe. We can't move or <laughs> yeah. like even that aside. Yeah. You know, most acoustic modeling software they're ray tracing the space, and audio, sound is obviously is not a ray; it's a wave. It's a lot more complicated than ray tracing would even reveal. So I think you know, the last time I checked, there was like one supercomputer 
somewhere in China at a physics department where they're trying to develop like actually wave-based modeling of these things. But you know, it's not something that is at the moment a practical consideration. Um, but I think that's what's interesting about the more pedestrian uses of audio that we have is that you know we're talking about actually a fairly effective technology in the time domain, even if you're talking about a wax cylinder. I mean, of course, like the speed will modulate based on springs or whatever that you know whatever tech, whatever particular audio technology you're talking about. Underneath it is some kind of clock. You know, so on the one hand, you're encoding some kind of temporality against some kind of clock, whether it's a spring, a needle, whether it's a, you know, a sample rate. Um, what's interesting to me is that, you know, for me, the interest in music is really an interest in time and in the capacity for humans to kind of simulate um, temporalities from other spaces through technology. So I think the question for audio, for the question, the core question for me about audio is that, in the absence of even decent spectral representation. As a temporal representation, audio has been way ahead of other technologies for a long time. And I think because of that, it kind of slipped by most kind of criticisms of um, yeah, contemporary technology and how slippery representation and reality has become. So to me, the, you know, the book is about audio, but the interest is actually more about representation in general um, and audio as a kind of canary in the coal mine of um, you know, more complicated forms of representation that people are concerned about now, like virtual reality. If I, if we can, I'd love to talk a little bit about your day job now, because I wonder, it seems to me that's whatever you were getting from your more art side of things, you're somehow getting that from this, or it, it's fulfilling something of the creative mica. Maybe that's what it is that you're enjoying in some way, this feeling like you have contact with a different type of person who you you know know is in the world but wouldn't normally have an occasion to interact with. Is there anything to that? Because that's, that's definitely one of the things that I've found um, valuable in the experience of going to all these different types of mm. events where people are very passionate about a very specific subject, which I am not, but I can you know get something out of observing the worlds that they've created around that or just sort of being in sharing space with people who think very differently than you I think is like an important thing yeah so I think the the yearning of um getting away from dealing with people who have essentially the same educational and cultural background um that I have getting out of the cult basically. yeah getting out of the cult and getting out of I mean people now talk about it like getting out of your bubble um but I think it's even um, deeper and stronger than I would have expected. So, I mean, as, as one example, so I've, I've been involved with producing like a large-scale air show. And by, by air show, meaning not the air shows that I was doing personally, but air shows <laughs> of the type that involve like... I have asked if there's any connection or uh, anything uh, rich about that. Let's say not yet, uh -huh. but um, <laughs> the Pacific Air Show is going in strange directions and maybe. Um, you know, but for example, like an air show as a civic event is pretty interesting. So, um, hold on. Are we talking yeah. about air show airplanes, blue angels, thunderbirds, et cetera? Yeah. Like we, so I'm, I'm talking about the Pacific air show in Huntington beach, California, which oh, the it. air show, yeah. which is go. like, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest air shows in the country I now. Love air shows. Huh. Do you love air shows? Yeah, I grew up, I'm Navy brat. So, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so actually this is really close to your life. So what's interesting about this is like, if you're if you're somebody who's been involved with contemporary art, liberal arts schools, generally know people who are involved in that same kind of crap, you probably don't know anyone who's in the military. 
which says something about your class. It says something about who you know, your education. You know, it, it says a lot about you if you don't know anybody in the military. Um, and you know, airplanes uh, and particularly military jet teams, they have a really negative connotation for most people I know. And not only that, but I think the whole audience for that kind of thing, and actually the the whole notion of patriotism, which I think is a pretty interesting thing to talk about, because I think I was indoctrinated into something where even the, the word patriotism is kind of like a complex, almost negative indicator for, you know, it's like basically a stand-in for a negative form of nationalism. Right. Well, I'll admit that it was not until I decided to go to every type of museum and all of them that I would ever go to a military museum. It was, you know, very pretty low on my list. And um, it, it, they are, there's always something interesting about them. It's, it's rarely, there's very few museums actually that I didn't feel were worth seeing afterwards. I could count them on one hand. But the military museums, there's always some unusual element of our culture that's on display there. Yeah, and also, I mean, the history of the United States is, well, and the history of most of the world is the history of that country or this world's military. I mean, that, that they are entwined heavily. So despite the heavily propagandist patriotism that goes on in those museums, like, there's something to learn there, right? Well, and it's that the world that we live in right now is a world, at least my whole adult life, has been... I remember, you know, it's been a state of constant war, and I, f I have felt all the time uh, a conflict of being involved in things um, like art, for example, which feel to me like intensely adjacent. And I think even more egregiously, art, my, my, own, my own desire to be involved civically and involved politically um, through art, I think has really questionable grounding in reality in terms of outcomes. So. I mean, in a democracy, you can talk about democratic inputs, but you also, mm -hmm. also have to talk about democratic outputs. If you care about the world, then you're talking about really outcomes. Yeah, there's a lot of talk in experimental art circles about like the potential of that art to affect change yeah. in ourselves and in, in the world. And that's something that I have lived and felt and believed in. And you sort of, there's a point where you sort of come to the edge of the cliff of that experience and you realize that there you know there there are boundaries to that it's not really limitless in certain ways there are people who will never be moved or reachable through that endeavor and um that's something that you just sort of try to ignore when you're a part of it and doing that but it's um i think especially after our last presidential election has sort of been creeping well, it feels like it's a time where philo just in general, like philosophy is a hard thing to, to comprehend as um, having tremendous value in a time where like the practical circumstances of most people on the planet are so dire. And so I think the, the you know. Right. So you get into, you know, privilege again and what we're allowed to prioritize as being important in our lives. But I think the way that people talk about privilege right now, I think actually even like under <laughs> underestimates the the um, the myop the myopic really self-centered view of of people who are living in the United States and have relatively easy lives in a within a broad scale you know when I think about for example like the students who um, were going to the school where I was teaching in Mexico mm -hmm. and their life circumstances uh, you know it's there's really no comparison actually I, th I think and I think it's important to even in the U.S. as we kind of hash out um, 
embedded racism and our own privilege and, and for each person to really do their own diligence in terms of understanding their identity and how they're contributing to that. You're listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find all of our episodes at iTunes by searching for The People Radio and also anywhere else you find podcasts. Right. And when you're there, uh, do us a favor and uh, leave a rating and review if you want to. That would really help us out. And what would help us out even more is for you to tell a friend tell about the show if you think that show. they would like it. Absolutely. And now back to our conversation with Todd LaRue and Micah Silver. I feel like there's something, like you could identify the time we're in almost as just like the time of connoisseurship culture in the U.S., which is something, has something to do with just the extreme excess, um, or to use a word you used earlier, like the extreme privilege of our situation here is that it's not enough to have a decent slice of pizza. Everyone wants to look at 500 Yelp reviews and figure out which exactly the most, you know, best pizza that you could ever find. Or the 10 best. Or the 10 best, or the 5 best, or whatever it is, and you know, people are willing to spend what little money they have to kind of find the kind of next most specific thing. And I think that touches on both of, you know, in terms of your interest in these kind of specific collections mm-hmm. and, you know, which I think you could you could say is some kind of like highly peculiarized um, connoisseurship on first, you know, on, on the part of someone who's producing the collection. Um, but at the same time, you can also talk about experimental music or some of the other topics we've been talking about um, as areas of extreme connoisseurship that actually have like intergenerational, you know, cult-like passing downs of certain kind of value systems around what is good, what is bad, what is prohibited, um, what's interesting, what's not interesting. And I think we've had a lot of conversations just about how um, you can get out of those kinds of modes while I think both of us are still to some extent trapped in some you know, in who we are, which is people mm-hmm. who have highly specific interests and, um, you know, interest in ideas and objects and sounds and things that are, you know, not going to be actually like objects of widespread interest. Um, so I think about that in terms of the show, um, but also in terms of both of us kind of like trying to find a way out of more and more specific areas of cultural production. Yeah, well, the, you know, the, the things that I'm exploring are often worlds that people have created for themselves or where they've built an identity around a specific thing that they're the connoisseur of. And going around to them, I guess, are, are you saying, like, I have become a connoisseur of that as a general idea? or I think what, what interests me is just, like, is connoisseurship another form of, like, libertarianism? <laughs> you know, basically like is you know if you if if we're if we were going to live the like most experimental music people are very familiar with essays by adorno on music right and the idea is like okay well you know at some point i, re- I had this like a hum moment where it's like fuck adorno is like a libertarian actually <laughs> like his version of music of music would be everyone producing idiosyncratic forms that you know completely remake the discipline each time and basically there's no communitarianism there's no there's no one is ever going to be able to sing along or dance along or share in these things and what we're after is the next most unique experience that will kind of be the next uh be the thing that we've never imagined or never experienced before yeah and so we can uh you know the internet is obviously like the 
you know, ADD, um, the most desirable space for kind of ADD feelings ever probably invented. Um, and we're all subject to that. <laughs> and so I think there's something where... It's interesting yeah. because in the experimental music world, one of the sort of facets of identifying with that is that, you know, the when you're experimenting, there has to be this possibility for failure. Mm-hmm. So it needs to... It, there has to be a situation where something doesn't work, but it's, I don't know. That's that, that always was sort of a tricky thing for me because, you know, if something turns out badly, then, well, no, that wasn't the way it was supposed to go. You know, that wasn't actually where, where that experiment was l- meant to lead. Well, and that has a lot to do with like the, the, the forms of curation and institutional support for the arts in general. Right. I mean, you, you um, you know you write a grant proposal about a piece that you never made. Everyone has had that experience. Right. Um, you you know or uh, like um, the 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 coolest thing about Impact was that the director there, this guy Johannes Goebel, who you know is a really amazing kind of old German hippie who started ZKM. You know we were genuinely um, evaluating projects on the basis of their the quality of the experiment and not the possibility of results. Mm-hmm. And that meant actually that sometimes people would be commissioned to do things that were not shown. So basically there were two phases, right? It'd be like, hey, Todd has an interesting idea. Uh-huh. If it doesn't work out, maybe no one else needs to see it. But, you know, the job of a cultural institution is to support the best, you know, questions, not to find interesting answers to share with the public. Right. Well, that's a privileged situation. Well, it's a question of what is the purpose of art in a community, you know, yeah. and what is the pur- purpose of art in society and what should be supported. So I think how that doubles back on connoisseurship is for me that connoisseurship is like thoroughly about answers. You know, you're looking for the next thing that kind of answers a desire, the next thing that is, um, you know, more refined, more specialized to your tastes. Um, and that kind of yields people a greater sense of certainty and authority Mm. as an individual. So it's rather than, um, you know, to me, it feels like the main disease of our culture is actually certainty. Yeah. So it's like, um, yeah, like the piece at the high school was called Answers Are How Questions Are Lost to Ideology. And I feel like that, for me, that has remained this kind of like fundamental feeling of like, you know, how do you know that you're not ISIS? You're so sure of what you believe. ISIS is so sure of what they believe. What's your, what is the difference? You know, is there any category of ideology that is so all-encompassing or open-ended that it kind of undoes the undo, undoes the question of what ideology is? My question about like the your avocation of going to these collections and also collecting them into the into um, the show at the library, which is an awesome show, and I think was a more um, it was like a, a much more you know mm, professional is the wrong word, but some kind of formalized um, representation of those collections than I would have expected. Uh-huh. And so I guess I'm interested in how you feel about the relocation of those um, those collections and the identity of the makers and also you, you know, your identity as the person who kind of is like the um, explorer. Well, my answer to the first part, I guess, is kind of boring or predictable. I, I love having, you know, the people who are selected or collections that were selected to be shown in that show were things that I thought more people should see or know about or consider that they probably weren't knowing about or considering otherwise. That that was sort of one of the criteria to, in selecting, in sort of narrowing down what would be 
included in the show. So it's it's great seeing people find unexpected or unexpected to me connections between their own lives and things that are in the show. And, you know, even obviously in our own art, we can't ever know what experience of it someone else will have. That's not something we can put forward or predict or prescribe. Um, so that's at play here. And there's um, nice sort of side effects to that. Um, there's obviously an ego boost that goes along with being sort of held up in some outlets as the discoverer of these things. And that's not really, I mean, I, I, I don't feel like that's the main experience of the show for people. Fortunately. I mean, it's not about that and it shouldn't be. Um, it's, but it's about sort of, I, I think one thing that I'm hoping some people go away from that show with is the idea that there are people out there who are dedicated to something and who are holding something back and saving it. And I don't need to be the person who is in charge of that stuff, or I don't have to have my own collection, but I can recognize the value in that sort of existing in the world and honor the people who have found something that they um, are, aren't going to let slip by. I feel like that's, that's it. I feel like I've been I've been trying to have this conversation with you for a long time, and I feel like that's the answer, because there's something. It was always felt to me like there's something about the identity of these makers, that felt, um, you know, to use an art an art world dirty word. I think that you found some sense of authenticity in their humanity in doing that, as different from. Um, well, it's automatic. I mean, everybody's got their own reasons for collecting or getting involved with something, and it's not always like a totally selfless act or to preserve some body of knowledge for humanity. But there is something that because it's sort of an automatic thing that they've accidentally in most cases ended up being the person for that topic. Mm -hmm. um, There is something that you could call authentic about that. Well, and it's a gate, it's a gateway to worlds that, that some viewers, myself included, were only partially or not aware of at all. Like the, the prison backdrop thing or the mm-hmm. or the the matchbook collection of all the gay and lesbian bars in in Los Angeles like that to me when I saw those things like no offense but it was like Todd LaRue was not involved in that it was like it was the the person who had that collection and then that community the gay and lesbian community right. in Los Angeles or 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 the the prison system community and their families like that was that was my main focus in that show which I think you know points to a successful curation. There's this really nice, um, yeah, what I'm feeling really doomy about the value of art, what I, I remind <laughs> myself of uh, another phrase, there is, there is um, this philosopher, Gumbrecht, still alive, I believe, but he, he had this nice idea, which was just um, that it is enough to just present an awareness of alternatives. And I think there's something, yeah, right. There's something in that with what you're saying, where it's like, it's inspiring to see the matchbook collection because it, it bookmarks how important some particular alternative was, or really all the, all the collections. You think, but when I see when I see um, both in person going on trips with you, but also seeing the show, the feeling I get is more about my sense of wonder for the individuals. Yeah. Um, why they did it? Why was this stuff so important to them? Why? How did they just find themselves? In particular, like it's not their job. It's not. Um, they weren't doing it for some kind of like grant funding or. Even you know, particularly with art, something like prestige or notoriety, right? They just did it because they felt it was deeply important, and I think that's kind of 
um, maybe the sense of authenticity I feel like you were, you, I, I have felt like you were after with, um, you know, going to visit, visiting everything from historical collections to, um, you know, finding people who had amassed these, these yeah. objects. Yeah, well, I mean, those, it, it, and it's kind of interesting that the possibility of these alternate worlds is actually something that experimental art and music is going after. Yeah. And um, this is just, a, and I've really always sort of felt like that I was, approaching you know the swedish christmas festival with so bad. as that was so terrible that was not a, a great one I, the norwegian christmas fair that i went did, to the didn't make it was, into the show at central well there wasn't much of a collection there there was it, it wasn't good because there wasn't too much um going on there that people could really like hang their hat on the identity of that well I, but I, it was really important for that community i think we we were as right you know sometimes you're you're there as a voyeur and it's not important to us because usually. it's not a usually right. Yeah. So I think that's that's the other thing that we could talk about with with your pursuit is this kind of like voyeur, <laughs> voyeurism. But I think for like the Swedish festival, it's like that event is probably extremely important for multiple right. generations of Swedish people in um, Southern California. And, and just, it absolutely doesn't matter that we didn't derive great pleasure. No, from it's not it. for us. Right. Yeah. But but there's many other things that are also not for us that for some reason we can find a way into or that it's presented as an alternative in a way that's satisfying. Yeah. And I think the question is like, do we live in a time where, um, raising awareness as a strategy in general has proven, um, like democratic outputs and not just an endless stream of democratic inputs. And I think that's where I, where I get more confused about uh -huh. my own labors, which is if you, it's a beautiful thing to create alternatives, but it may also be that we now live in a time where because of the intense archiving of information that has been going on for a couple hundred years, um, you know, there is an, there has never been a greater time to have an awareness of endless alternatives, but how do you bring those well, together just, into yeah. a new society that actually works for people? Well, it does work. I think they just, they're not always positioned in the, the best or most optimal ways, but you know, Fear and hatred is is created by a lack of alternatives, by a lack of understanding of what else is out there. And you get liberal bubbles in places where a lot of different people have to interact with one another, where you're like forced to sort of recognize these alternative experiences. And through being forced to recognize them as existing, begin to empathize with people as well. To me, the problem with that that view is that it doesn't account for things like orthodox religiosity and other forms of orthodox ideology where it's not it, contact and awareness is not enough. And I think that's to me, that's like the takeaway right. from the past few years is like or really, I feel like since since uh, Bush, the second was like uh -huh. raising awareness, you know, like the 90s diversity awareness that we all experienced did not yield the results that it. Well, should it have. was also forced. Right. There's a I don't know. It can happen. But maybe it needs to be more forced. I mean, <laughs> less, I mean, uh, I, what I'm saying is that, like, simply raising awareness of things seems to not have generated the kind of cultural power that those things have needed to in, really enforce a kind of, like, um, well, more pluralistic. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, part of it is the responsibility of uh, us each as an individual to make ourselves available to other experiences. It's not just going to be enough to have it around, I guess is what you're saying. Um, and we're all sort of 
guilty of this in various ways of, of not being able to move in our own ideology. But I, I don't know. I feel like I have found some value in my own life in experiencing other realities, even when I very strongly disagree with the perspectives of people at certain types of events or festivals. But it still feels valuable somehow to just share that space. I think something is happening there. Well, Todd and Micah, thank you guys for being on the yeah, show. Yeah, thank you so thank much. You <laughs> yes. Thank you both. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press, and you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page to find all our past episodes there. Yeah, that's one place you can find us. Uh, you can also go to iTunes and search for The People Radio, or you can go to the pod catcher of your choice. We're on all of them. And our interstitial music is Ockfiff by Lewis Keller, as always. And we're going to go out with a track off of Ian Wellman's new release from Dragon's Eye Recordings. It's from October of 2018. The name of the album is Susan's Last Breath Became the Chill in the Air and the Fog Over the City's Night Sky. And the name of the song is Darkest Hour.
Thank you for joining us on The People tonight. 